Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. When Mary Magdalene got to the tomb on resurrection morning, the empty tomb, uh, she was a basket case. According to John's account, she just couldn't believe that Jesus had been resurrected. Her whole focus was on finding the dead body of Jesus. So today, in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study, we're going to ask the question, why was that so important to her? And also, John tells us that when she was in the tomb, she turned around not once, but twice before she looked and really recognized uh, recognized Jesus, who was standing there with her all the time, but she just didn't recognize him initially. Why was that? So um, we're going to talk about that today to find out more about what happened to Mary Magdalene when she did finally realize that the uh, risen Lord, the risen Jesus, was right there standing before her all the time. I'm getting ready to pass this around, which... Uh, we're going to, I hope, I expect to today as we look at uh, John one more time and his account of the morning at the tomb and Mary Magdalene, uh, to get to the point where she turns to him and calls him Rabboni or Rabboni. And uh, that means two things, actually. It's a double meaning. It means master, but it also means teacher. And we're going to talk about, as we talk about today, is of all the things that Mary could have called him at that moment, why was it teacher? What was it? What is it about teaching God's word that is the one way you would address Jesus when you first see him after you think he's dead and he's alive? There, there, there's something special about teaching God's word or preaching it or hearing it taught or preached. And so we're going to talk about that today. But uh, in, in, in doing my research, I found that, uh, have, have you ever heard of a sculptor named Gutzon Borglum? Do you know what he's most famous for sculpting? Go ahead, Ruth. Mount Rushmore. He sculpted Mount Rushmore. It took him like 12 or 14 years or something. This is fifth grade. 
I'm really good at these at these Jeopardy questions. I think he also sculpted Stone Mountain in Georgia as well. No, that's a different. I think that's a different person. Yeah, yeah. His name is Gutzon Borglum. Borg, B-O-R-G-L-U-M, Borglum, G-L-U-M. What I didn't know is that he also sculpted Mary coming out of the tomb saying Rabboni. Yes, it's in Washington, D.C., of all places. <laughs> they sure need, need that there, don't they? Um, Rock Creek Cemetery in Washington, D.C., so I have two photographs of it here, one kind of straight on, more close up, and one a little farther away. And you can see that he's actually sculpted it in such a way that she looks like she's coming up out of the tomb and reaching out for Jesus. And on the bottom he has, on a, on a block of concrete, Rabboni uh, written out. But what's the remarkable thing is, uh, like the Statue of Liberty, which was actually originally done in, in a bronze material, I think is what it was. So when that was first done, Statue of Liberty, it actually looked like a copper penny. But over time, that oxidizes, and then it becomes green, like we see it today. So if they if they cleaned that up, it would go back to looking original like it. Which always was, you know, I grew up, uh, I, I was spent some years in my childhood in New Jersey, and every time someone would come to visit us from West Virginia, my family, we'd say, they say, can we go see the Statue of Liberty? And so we went there many times, and the, the uh, souvenir uh, uh, vendors who had their carts all around there, all the Statue of Liberties that they were selling were copper-colored. And I'm like, well, it's green. But I didn't know at the time as a kid, but so it oxidized. So the same thing with this. It was originally done in bronze, but it's oxidized over the years. And what is the most amazing thing, he, he did not sculpt her with tears. He did not sculpt her with tears, but over the years, the oxidation has actually given her tears. And it's just the most amazing thing that God, in his own way, said, Gutzon, your, your, your sculptor is good, but she needs to look like she's crying because she was at the tomb. And so, anyway, Jamos, if you can... Take it, look at it, and then pass it around so everybody can take a look at it. Um, it really is pretty uh, pretty incredible uh, to see there and to think about that. So, Okay, so uh, we're in John chapter 20, and we're, I'm going to just read uh, where we, to where we finished last week, and then we'll pick up from there because we need to move forward. And... Uh, Make progress. So it's uh, chapter 20 of John, and we're going to start at verse 10. And John writes, uh, Then the disciples, who we know that is uh, Peter and John, uh, went back to their, their homes. So they'd been, remember that story? They'd been at the tomb. They looked in. Peter went home still struggling, and John went home believing that uh, Jesus was alive and resurrected. Verse 11, but Mary, who now followed them, by the time she gets there, they're gone. She stood outside the tomb crying. 
which is exactly what we have there on the Borglum statue. As she wept, and we said last week, don't think that this was Mary quietly sobbing, politely crying. Uh, the original Greek, the way to describe it, she was bawling. I mean, she was loud. She was crying loudly. She was she was beside herself. I mean, this was just an outburst of of emotion and uh, and very public. And if you were anywhere around there, you would have heard her. So as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And thank you, Chuck, last week for kind of making the analogy of, you know, that's the two angels at the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, one on each side. This was reminiscent of that. I think John probably wanted us to see that. Okay, verse 13. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. One, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. So that's where we finished last week, and I just wanted to come back around to have a little bit of a another little discussion here, because uh, Mary now has said three times, we don't know where they have put him. In verse 2, you want to look back at verse 2, she says, So she came running to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, who we know is John, and said, They have taken our Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And then verse 13, she says, They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. And then verse 15, she says, uh, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him. So this was clearly a driving motivation, concern, and problem that Mary was, and she's crying out loud, and she's bawling, and she's weeping, because Obviously, she doesn't know where they have put him. But he is not. He he he. We we don't know where they have put him. We don't know where they have put him. We don't know where they have put him. And so, one thing that tells us is that Mary clearly did not believe that Jesus was resurrected, that he was alive. Because you don't go around asking where the live person is like that. You go around asking. There was a body in this tomb. I saw him being put in there, and now he's gone. Where have you? Where has he been put? Where have you put him? We don't know where they put him. So she wasn't there looking for a risen, alive Jesus. She was there looking for the dead body of a dead Jesus. It's very, very clear, and she was convinced of that. And and so the question is, why was she co- so? And why was she so convinced of that? Um, at this point, she's heard the women come back and say they heard the message from the angel that he is risen, and now she's going to the tomb to see her for herself. But she still hasn't, she still hasn't believed it herself. So, so, you know, why do you think she was struggling with that as and so so much uh, at that point? I think taking 
that he was not alive. Yeah. Or that he was taken away. You can also do it. You know, why, why was she upset that he was, his body was taken away? We can talk about that too. We said actually last week there were a couple of reasons why she might have been so upset that Jesus was taken away, his body was taken away. One, who, who did it? Uh, it wasn't the disciples because they were all still hiding in their homes. So if someone moved the body, it was either the Romans who were uh, not uh, believers and not Jewish and were, uh, were Gentiles and were enemies of the Jewish people and of Israel. Uh, if it wasn't them, then it had to be the religious leaders and the religious leaders, although they were Jewish, they still hated Jesus, and um, and they were enemies in a way. They were spiritual enemies uh, of what Jesus was preaching and doing. And the religious leaders, because they're the ones that asked for it to be sealed, because they were afraid somebody would take Well, right. But in Mary's mind, there's only two options. It has to either be the Romans or the religious leaders. And if it wasn't religious leaders, fine, it was the Romans. Either way, they were enemies of Jesus, enemies of his followers and enemies of of, of the faith in him. Um, we also said that she might have wanted to know where he was just for the peace of knowing how it's just that knowing where your loved one is buried and interred, even if they're uh, cremated and their ashes are spread somewhere, you at least know where their final resting place is. That's a place where you can go and you can find peace in knowing that they are there. Um, my parents are buried in West Virginia. We almost never get over there. But I have a, a, a distant cousin who goes, and her parents are buried in the same cemetery. And every time she goes, she takes flowers and puts them on my my dad's uh, and my grandparents' uh, you know, grave, grave stone place, and she sends me a picture of it. And that just gives me such peace of knowing that she's doing that. So, it, you know, it gives you, and so maybe part of it was that she needed to have peace of knowing where Jesus was buried so she could go and, I'm losing my, <laughs> so she, there we go. So she could go and have that peace of knowing where he, where he was lying in, in death. Uh, so those are a couple of things that we talked about. Do you have any other insights as far as why she was upset, why she didn't believe he was dead, or why she was so upset that his body was not there? Right now? Well, I think, first of all, she would be afraid if the Romans took it, it could be desecrated. It could, things could happen to it. But the other thing is, and I mentioned this last week as well, according to Jewish tradition, then the person needs to be have been buried within 24 hours in order to ascend into heaven. I think that they have to be buried in order to be um, in America. There are certain things that need to be done at a certain time in a certain way, period. And if they're not, then, you know, things don't go the way you they're supposed <laughs> to go. So there is a concern about that, for sure. Right. As a practical yeah. point, they, um, they don't embalm the bodies. Correct. So if they don't get buried pretty soon, right. you start to have an odor. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and she doesn't want to know just where she, where he is. He, she said again, "I will go get him." Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Maybe maybe she. I don't know. Have to look back at the scriptures, but you know, several times when he told his disciples that he was going to 
be crucified. Right. Three days, and then he was going to die. Right. Maybe she wasn't there and didn't hear it, even though he thinks she was always with him. Yeah. Him. Right. But perhaps she didn't hear him ever say that. But those who even even those who heard it though still didn't remember it. So it's possible that she was there or had heard it, but like all the others, had just not. It just wasn't in her mind at that time that way. To get back to what Dennis said, too, I think, you know, that kind of goes back to, I think, another reason it might have been is because she just had this need in her soul and spirit to care for Jesus. And saying, I'll go get him was her way of saying, I'll get him and I'll take care of him. I've taken care of him all through these three years. I've traveled with him. We've gone together with the disciples, with the women. I've been with them every step of the way. I've taken care of his needs and the disciples' needs, and I just will go get him, and I'll take care of him. And she just wanted to know where he was so she could care for him, even in death, as she had in life. She wanted to care for him in death as well. Any other thoughts right this? I had a couple more that I wrote down as far as uh, why it was so important to know where his body was. And one I have written down here is that everything that had happened to him at the end of his life was done outside of the fellowship of the believers, just to speak of. So he is arrested in the garden by Jewish soldiers. He is put on trial before the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin. He is then taken to Pilate, who puts him on trial and condemns him, and then he's crucified by um, Roman soldiers. Everything that's happened to him up to this point has been outside of this small fellowship of the, the, the disciples and the women and her. Up until then, everything has been happening within their own little group to speak of. And then, although it is Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, believers who then take him off the cross and bury him, even they, although they're believers, they weren't part of that group. That you know, They were believers quietly, silently. We never have any evidence of Nicodemus being with the group. He seems to have always been in Jerusalem pretty much. We don't know anything really too much about Joseph of Arimathea, except that he was a believer and he was from Arimathea. But but Mary Magdalene and the disciples, they were like the close group that, that were with him. So from the time he was arrested to the time he was buried, she had lost touch with him. And I think maybe she just wanted to have the final touch to, to bring him back into the fellowship of those who were closest to him during all of those years because he had been outside of their, their love and their devotion throughout all the awful things that happened at the end of his life. Another thing I've written down is just her sense of loss. You know, she has lost Jesus. She has lost the disciples right now. Where are they? I mean, she kind of knows where they are, but, you know, that's never going to be the same. Uh, They've lost the cause because they thought Jesus was going to establish his kingdom right then and there. Uh, she's lost her future. What does the future hold for her without him? Uh, she's lost the fellowship with the other believers. She's lost her relationship with Jesus, and maybe she's even lost hope. And now she's lost his body. 
And just, you can only take so much loss, you know. And uh, I remember uh, when um, my mom passed away, uh, she had remarried, and she and my, my stepfather were living in West Virginia in a small ranch, and outside in the back of their house, they had a above-ground pool. And uh, we would always go there, and the kids, and we would always enjoy the pool in the summer. And after she passed, we would stay with them. Uh, you know, they had room for us in their house. So when she passed away, we went to the funeral, and we stayed with my stepfather. And uh, But without my mom there, there was really no reason to go back again. Uh, we would, of course, be friends and, and have a relationship with my stepfather, but not where we would go back and stay with him anymore. And so I get that, I, that weekend we were there, whatever the days it was, uh, I got into that pool, and I just knew that this would be the last time. I just knew this is going to be the last time I'm in this pool. And it had been such a special place for us to share as, uh, with family, with the kids. And uh, they were cooking dinner or whatever, and Jan came to the door a couple of times and said, Greg, come on in. Dinner ready. <laughs> I'll be there. But I just I took a little extra time just to kind of soak in that moment, knowing that it wouldn't ever be like that ever again. And it never was. And so, you know, what does Mary, how does she feel? Jesus was the leader. Jesus was the, 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 the one who brought him up. Without him, things will never be the same. And so the, the feeling of loss must have been terrible for her. And, and not having the body, the loss even becomes multiplied and even greater. And so just at least knowing where his body is would maybe help, you know, lessen some of that feeling of loss perhaps. The other thing, as far as why she is convinced that he's dead, I think, among all the other explanations is, is because he was crucified. And because of, when you see someone who has been crucified, and the results of that, you can never believe that they're going to ever be alive again, because it's such a terrible, awful thing. I've not seen the passion of the Christ. I don't want to see it. It's bad enough for me to think of it in my own head. I don't need to see it graphically produced. Those of you who have, it's fine. But it's not for me because it's already bad enough in just my own imagination. But uh, but but the Bible tells us a little bit about how bad it, it was for him. So I wanted to just review those passages just briefly. So if you want to follow along, you can go to Isaiah uh, 52. And this talks about Jesus being crucified. Uh, 700 years before it happened or, or, or so. Uh, so Isaiah 52 and verse 13, it says, uh, Isaiah writes, See, my servant will act wisely. And he's talk, talking about Jesus. Jesus is a servant. Uh, God's talking. See, my servant, Jesus, will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, his form marred beyond human likeness. That's the result of Jesus' torture and crucifixion. His appearance so disfigured beyond that of any man that his form was marred beyond human likeness. Didn't even look like a human anymore. You can imagine that. Yeah. I hadn't put that together before, but 
that also I count a little bit when Mary turns out that Raymond doesn't recognize him. That's not the way he looked the last time she saw him. Yeah, yeah. He looked awful. The, and then there's another passage, I'm not, I'm not going to read it right now, but there's another passage that um, that talks about that probably in, in the punishment that they were doing, along with the crown of thorns and the flogging and everything else, that they probably also pulled out his beard. I mean, if you can imagine that the soldiers, when they were doing that, how bad that would have been. So lastly, turn, if you want, to Psalm 22. And this is also talking about Jesus uh, on the cross. Uh, we're going to start with verse 12, Psalm 22, 12. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls, bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey open, uh, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted with, away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Uh, you lay me in the dust of death. The dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So you can imagine, you know, his mouth, his tongue is sticking to the roof of his mouth. His bones are all out of joint. I mean, it's just a terrible, terrible way to die. <clears throat> so I think part of the problem Mary has in believing that he's alive is because she saw the way he died. And any of us would be able to relate to that, I think. Yeah. Um, the Passion of the Christ. I was, I was so not happy, but all the previous pictures, paintings of Christ in movies, he looked like, you know, yeah. perfect thing with right. blood coming out of his head. Right. And you knew from those passages how horrible it was. Right. And after Christ shows how yeah. horrible. In fact, the beating is so horrible that I cannot watch. I watch we watch it every Easter. Hmm. I can't watch that yeah. beating. I watch about thirty seconds. That's all I can take. Now I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a recommendation. Uh, Ruth gave you a recommendation for a wonderful concert. Gave that to us. I'm going to give you a recommendation. I think you can see it on um, YouTube. It's called St. John in Exile. St. John in Exile. It's a one-man show by, of all people, Dean Jones. Remember Dean Jones? Who, Herbie? Herbie, the Disney movie? Well, Dean Jones was a believer, and he performs St. John in Exile as John in exile, on the island, getting ready to get the revelation given to him. And he comes out, and he basically tells the story of being with Jesus. And just a one-man, one-on-one, he's talking to the audience, like I'm talking to you, and he just tells the story. But when he, and he's on a staff, he's an old man, and he has a staff to help him walk. And when he gets to the crucifixion, it is the most moving crucifixion uh, presentation or interpretation that I've ever seen. It moves me more than any, and there's no blood, there's no, all he does, but he acts, the way he acts it out and talks about it, and he takes his uh, staff and he puts it over his shoulders and puts his arms up on it, recreating Jesus on the cross. And they do something with the lights and his voice and the way, it's just, oh, it just blows you away. And there's nothing graphic about it, but it's just 
the way he does it and your imagination and you see it and you're there. And it's incredible. So if you ever get a chance to watch that, I would highly recommend it. And he does an amazing job. So, yeah. Uh, I might have mentioned this before in here, but uh, there's a movie that I watched every Easter. It's uh, 1928 silent film called King of Kings. Right. Anybody's ever seen it? Very right. Yep. And uh, it goes through the whole, the whole life of Christ with the crucifixion. The whole thing is just incredible. And it's black and white, and it's amazing the special effects that they managed to do back in that day. So, yes, that's right. Yeah. We had a man, a member of the Hamilton Church, that did sing. Ah. He performed it? Yeah. He he involved in theater or anything. And so he, he it is very, very powerful. It's incredible. Yes, it is. I did, I'm. I don't like any kind of violence or anything on TV. I just, I can't do it. Right. And I didn't want to go to the Passion of the Christ, but I did, and I envisioned myself running out of theater. <laughs> there was just something very special, uh, different about that, about, you know, the, you know, all the, that. He bore that, whatever's, that pain and that, that punishment was such dignity. Mm. It 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 wouldn't have been as if one of us had right. to gone that. Um, there was just something, and I don't know if that's the way it really was. Right. But it made it beautiful. Yeah. And I never took my eyes, closed my eyes from that. But if you've seen that, you can appreciate why Mary would have such a hard time after seeing, yeah, Jesus like that, yeah. There was something about our Savior. Yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. Okay, so let's move on to something a little bit lighter and 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 happier. So at verse fourteen, she said, or at verse sixteen, uh, she Jesus Jesus said to her. Mary. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It also means master. But and there you saw it in this. Isn't that such a isn't that such you just see that this would be what she would have probably looked like when she had done that. So uh I wanted to ask, you know, about what it was, <clears throat> because he talked to her. And she didn't, it's not like she recognized his voice per se, because he said before he said her name, he said, you know, why are you woman? He said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And she thought it was the gardener. It wasn't until he said her name, Mary, that she knew right then and there it was Jesus. So what was it about, about her name? What was it? What was the, what was it there that made that? So obvious then to her the way the way that he said her name. What what do you think? Take somebody's name, but if it's somebody that's very close to you, it comes out different. Whether you would take it or not, I mean, it just does. And I'm sure that he said that with great passion. Beyond that, why would the gardener know her name? <laughs> could be, it could be something technical like that, perhaps. Dan? A lot of them, more like, uh, 
Yes, but so we talked about how he was common and he was dead, and she's looking for the body. Right. So when she sees a man, mm -hmm. uh, of course it can't be Christ, because Christ is dead. Right. So she she might have glanced at him initially, because uh, it couldn't have been in heaven, until she heard his voice. Well, she heard his voice first. She heard his voice. It was when he said her name. Cheryl, you think you were going to say something? Uh, well, I haven't dug into all of this like we are now. Yeah. This is always something that made this particular scene so special to me is that he knows our name. Mm -hmm. She had probably heard him say her name hundreds, thousands of times, right? And I think Doris is right on. I mean, I think he had a certain way of saying her name like no one else said it. I think when Jesus says any of our names, he's going to say it like no one else has ever said it before. The difference for her versus us is that she had heard him say her name. So whether it was an inflection or an accent or a way that he said it that was so familiar to her, maybe it was just this, and I think Doris is right, too. You know, there's when you say your name of your children, they probably hear it differently when it's you because of the way you love them so much as opposed to someone else who might say their name. So they recognize you, and they know it's you by the way you say their name because you say it in a way that no one else says it because of the love and relationship you have with them. And so I think the same way with her, with Jesus, is there was just, you know, we say there's just something about that name, Jesus, Jesus. Well, there's just something about that name when Jesus says your name. Is it possible, too? We talked about this last week when pizza name Mary Mary. <laughs> The baby said Mary, Mary. Yeah, there's there's just something. There's a song for you to look up. Okay. He knows my name. Yes. Scripture. Yes. Yes. Uh, by Francesca Artistella. <laughs> Artistella. What is it? Do you have a thing? The name is He Knows My Name. Yeah. It's a song. It's yeah. a song. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Jesus knows our name. And so. So although we have never heard Jesus say our name, we will, won't we? And so what do you think that'll be like, actually? Like, what do you think it'll be like to hear Jesus say your name for the first time? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy, it's right. What? And here's my way of thinking is that... Um, Jesus will be the first one to say my name when I get to heaven. There's going to be a lot of people there who know me, I hope, and who know my name. But when I get to heaven, the first one, I think, personally, the first one who's going to say my name is Jesus. With his arms open wide. <laughs> and I can't wait to hear how he says my name because I know, like Mary knew him because of the way he said her name. I'm going to just know him because of the way he says my name when I get to heaven, he's going to be the first one, the first one to say my name. So there's one other thing I want to dig in here because I don't know if you've ever really, uh, really cared about it. 
but it's here, so we need to talk about it. And then as if you it, look at verse 14. So she says at this, she turned around and saw, so she's talking to the angels, right? And she's in the, in the tomb facing towards where Jesus' body had been. And she's, she's just talked to the angels. They've talked to her. So her back, you know, you get the idea, probably her back is to the entrance of the tomb, right? So verse 14, at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Okay, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. So that's verse 14. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And then look at verse 16. It says, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So she turned toward him. So there's two turn. So there's two turnings here. In verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. In verse 16, she turned toward him. So why are there two turnings? Why did she have to turn twice? So she's talking to the angels. She turns and sees this Jesus. But when Jesus says her name, she turns again. Why are there two turnings? Why does she have to turn twice? Is that is that your Bible? Is that, what does your say in verse sixteen, verse fourteen? It just says Jesus said. I'm sorry. Je- I'm sorry. I have a word over here. It says um, uh, if you if you've laid him, if you've taken him uh, if you've laid him I will take him away. Whatever that right. Mm-hmm. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic. Right. She turned. She turned. She turned. Okay. Well, that one turning, she turned. Oh, yeah, look at verse 14. What does verse 14 say? Which means, uh, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. No, no, don't go that far. I'm sorry, verse 14. Go to, so verse 16, you just read to us, it says she turned, right? So go back to verse 14. What's that say in verse 14? Um, uh, I just see. Oh, oh! Jesus said to her, "There she turned." Right. She has two turnings. There's a turning in verse 14 and a turning in verse 16. Yeah. So she turned twice. Why? Can you just turn once? She turned from the angels to see Jesus, but then she turned again after he said her name. So why are there two turnings? He wasn't straight in front of her when she turned around. Right. So that's why she didn't run. But then she turned. I didn't say turned around. <laughs> I think she just turned forward. That's why she's running again. Yeah. Okay. What? What else? Kind of just laugh at it. Yeah. You know, she hurts some funny or something. So in one instance she turns her whole body, and the other instance she just turns her head. Yeah. That's possible. Joe. Goes back to what I brought up last week. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus was talking to two disciples, but they didn't know who he was. They didn't recognize him. And there was something about his physical appearance. Something was different. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the same thing with Mary, because, I mean, he traveled all the way with the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then he disappeared. And then they started talking among themselves. You know, gee, did you feel that stirring in your heart? What was going on with Mary? She was in so much denial. She couldn't, well, you know, she couldn't accept the fact that he 
was, was there. Yeah. yeah, he was there. Right. And then it's the intonation of when he said, Mary, I mean, I like, I know as a kid, I knew a certain way that my mom right. would say something. Right. And there was no question. It was mom. It was mom. <laughs> and, and, when, and you knew the difference between I'm in trouble, <laughs> which was common, or, you know, it was a love, it was something loving right. about your mom. Right. You know, and just before she passed away, she said something to me that I knew mom recognized me, but then when she, you know, just before she died, yeah. She couldn't say that, but so I put myself in the same situation, you right. know, in life, right. you know, and, and, and we go through so all, all this stuff and our psychological things just kind of go bizarre. Yeah. And I think we have to put that in perspective because when you're, when you, if I would have walked to, to the grave and saw my mom standing there, I would have dropped <laughs> You know, um. well, I think we said it before too, though. I mean, you go to a reunion after 50 years, let's say. Yeah. And okay. so there's some people you might recognize right away. There are others that you say, once you know who they are, you say, oh, I see the resemblance. Well, it can work the other way. In the in the afterlife, maybe he came back looking a lot younger. I mean, who knows? Well, I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my two uh, cents worth here. So I think one of two things, I think one of two things happened here. I think one possibility is that she turned back around and um, and and had her back to him again. In other words, she's talking to the angels, she turns around and sees him, she thinks it's the gardener, so she turns back around to the angels, because would you rather be facing the gardener, or would you rather be facing the angels? You know, so uh, she turns around, she glances at him quickly. It doesn't look like Jesus. She doesn't think it's Jesus. She thinks it's the gardener, and she turns back around to the angels. So then, when he says her name, she has to turn a second time. The other possibility is that he, I think, in my way of seeing this, like the sculptor here depicted, that Jesus is not inside the tomb; he's outside the tomb. And so, when she hears him talk, she turns around. And here's him addressing her. She walks out of the tomb, but she, still thinking he's the gardener, is looking around the garden for some evidence of, hey, Mr. Gardener, did you put him out here somewhere? And she's looking, she's looking past, she walked past him. She briefly glanced at him, doesn't recognize Jesus, thinks he's the gardener. So she walks past him looking for maybe, did he bring Jesus with him? Did he bring his body with him? And so when he says, Mary, she has to turn around and again, and, and see him face to face. And I, I think that's poetic because I think there are a lot of people today who have the same experience. And this would stand, we go back to what you were saying, or maybe one reason she didn't recognize because she just glanced at him. So she glances at him, it's not him, turns back around to the angel, she glances at him, goes past him, and, and thinks it's the garden because she didn't look closely to, at him didn't study him, it was a glance, which is why she would have turned back around one way or the other. And I think this is poetic because I think a lot of people have the same experience with Jesus today. And that is they glance at him quickly. And when he's not the Jesus they expect him to be, they turn back around and and they don't and they don't go towards him. Or 
they glance at him and he's not the Jesus they want him to be. And so they just walk past him and just keep going and never turn back around. So you have people who glance at Jesus. He's not the Jesus they expect him to be. And they turn around and never turn back. Or you have people who look at Jesus briefly, quickly, glance at him. He's not the Jesus that they want him to be. And so they just keep on going on with the rest of their lives. And I think in Mary's turning and turning, turning and turning, we have just an example of either one of those could have been true. But I think it's her, her, her second turn was necessary because on the first turn, she thought it wasn't him and he can't help me. And when he then said, Mary, like, Mary, wait, then she turns and a second time. And that's what people fail to do often in their life. They fail to turn and look at him again and, and come to him, even though he's there waiting for them. So. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom. Shalom.